0: You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So, after a couple of weeks break, we're uh, coming back to John Chapter 4. So, if you've got your Bibles handy or uh, your Bible apps on your phone, fire them up and uh, go to John 4.24. And uh, we're back in the story of Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well. It's a story that's both rich and profound, and it's potentially life-changing when we understand and respond to what this story tells us and teaches us. So we'll pick it up in verse 24. It says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labour. Others have laboured and you have entered into their labour. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I've talked in previous messages about what it means to be a true worshipper, one who worships the Father in spirit and in truth. If you miss those, you can catch up by our podcast or our website or our Facebook page or our YouTube channel. Then this illiterate outcast woman wants to talk to him about the coming Messiah. John, in typical fashion, helps his readers to understand this unfamiliar Messiah word with a little note, he who is called Christ. Now, Christ is not Jesus' surname. His name was most likely something like Jesus bar Joseph, that is, Jesus' son of Joseph. It's a a bit like a person with the surname Johnson, who had an ancestor at some time in family history who was known as Barry, son of John, Barry Johnson. Messiah, Christ, is a title, and it's an important one. We'll come back to look at it in a bit more detail in the future message. It's interesting that Jesus reveals himself to this Samaritan woman and to no one else so far as the Messiah. In fact, it won't be until his trial that he admits to anyone else that he is the Messiah. But the title carried some unwanted political baggage with the Jews and the Romans at this point in history. It may be that if he revealed himself at the Messiah in Jerusalem, as the Messiah in Jerusalem, the people would have tried to crown him as king on the spot. That would have caused political and probably military chaos and slaughter. Jesus is and was king, of course. But he was never going to allow anyone to force his hand about when and how he revealed his kingship. My hour has not yet come is a common phrase in John's gospel. In answering this woman, he not only reveals to her that he is the long awaited Messiah, but she's the first person to hear him claim to be God. I who speak to you, I am is what he says to her. She knows exactly what he's claiming, to be none other than the God who spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus. It's the claim that will eventually get him crucified. But for now, he's pleased to reveal it to this woman. In Verse 27, just then the disciples come back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Just as Jesus finishes his conversation with her and perfect timing, as always with Jesus' ministry, the disciples return with some food. And against all social conventions, they find Jesus talking to a Samaritan woman. They marvelled, it says, which probably doesn't really give us a clue to their reaction. It makes it sound like uh, they were saying or they were thinking, what a wonderful thing that the master would be having a conversation with a woman. But really, they were shocked, surprised, maybe even a little horrified that Jesus would so blatantly break with the way things are supposed to be done. But Jesus is never one to conform to societal rules if they prevented him doing good and doing God's will. In fact, the disciples were so surprised that they were speechless. In their surprise, no one thought to ask her what she wanted, nor to ask him why he was talking to her. We'll come back to the story of the woman in a later message as well, but Just note the hurry she was in to go back to her village to spread the news of this man, this prophet, this Christ. Such a hurry that she left her water jar behind. She'll be back, of course, with crowds of people next time, one of the first and most effective evangelists in the Bible. Jesus has that effect on people. All the things that we once thought were important get left behind. Once we meet this man, this God, they pale into insignificance. And once we've met him, we want everyone else to know him too. It's only natural when Jesus has a heart changing, life changing impact on you. William Barclay has said the Christian life is based on the twin pillars of discovery and communication. No discovery is complete until the desire to share it fills our hearts. And we cannot communicate Christ to others until we have discovered him for ourselves. He goes on to say of this passage, a person may have some trouble which he is embarrassed to mention and which he keeps secret, but once he is cured, he is often so filled with wonder and gratitude and amazement at the cure that he tells everyone about it. A man may hide his sin, but once he discovers Jesus Christ as Saviour, his first instinct is to say to men, look at what I was and look at what I am. This is what Christ has done for me. That strikes me as a pretty accurate description of this woman's response to Jesus. verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Jesus must be the undisputed master of cryptic comments. He does it all the time in the Gospels. Destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. Unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And now I have food to eat that you do not know about. Four cryptic phrases, and we're only in the beginning of the Gospel of John. No wonder people had so much trouble understanding him. Sometimes... He uses his cryptic comments to lead people into a deeper discussion, to teach them spiritual things by stirring their curiosity. Other times, though, there seems to be a more sinister reason, one that may not sit very comfortably with us, but is true nonetheless. Matthew 13, it tells us, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? And he answered them, It seems that sometimes Jesus spoke in parables deliberately so that they would not understand. In God's sovereign will, it seems that he has decided that some will hear and understand. To you, it has been given to know, and to others, he will not grant that understanding. But to them, it has not been given. Now, I'll say... Know more about that for now. The whole idea that this nice guy Jesus would deliberately exclude some people from understanding him is a bit confronting. But it's something I'll leave for you to ponder and search out for yourself. Here, Jesus is again using an everyday item to teach deeper spiritual truths. Recall at the start of the chapter that the disciples had gone into town to buy food, it was lunchtime. They'd walked many miles and they were all hungry. But when they returned with their food, Jesus is not interested in eating. He's been involved in a much more important task and food is the last thing on his mind. Have you ever become so engrossed in what you're doing that you forget to eat? Or your appetite just seems to disappear? Have you ever been to the task that is so important That lunch will just have to wait. That might give you a small insight into why Jesus wasn't hungry. He'd been about the most important task imaginable, salvation. He was so busy doing the will of God that nothing else mattered. That's not to say, of course, that food is unimportant, only to say that food is not the most important thing. And sometimes food is not very important at all. Do you remember the devil trying to tempt Jesus at the start of his ministry in John in sorry Matthew 4 Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said to him if you are the son of God command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus could have turned the stones into bread. He had every right to, after all, he had created them in the first place. He can do what he likes with them. And hunger is a legitimate need. It's not sinful to satisfy hunger by legitimate means. But for Jesus, and I hope for all of us, there's a higher calling. Obedience to God should take precedence over all that we do, even eating. Sadly, our obedience is spasmodic. But Jesus, his obedience was complete and perfect. It was the very essence of his life. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. I wonder how many of us could claim to have the same or even a vaguely similar dedication to serving God. I know I don't. I'm too easily distracted. Distracted by my appetite, distracted by my work, distracted by TV, you name it. It doesn't take much for me to be distracted by stuff that doesn't really matter. Has God been calling you to examine your life and your lifestyle? Is he prompting you to recognize areas where you've prioritized your own comfort over his kingdom? Is he calling you to a radical change, a change that may put your future and your income, and your security, and maybe even your life at risk? And are you anxious about where the basic necessities of life are going to come from if you take that step? Jesus said, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? his death until then he's going to do exactly what his father in heaven, what sent him to do no more and no less. And that's important for us to realize too. God has prepared good works already for us to do. We just need to walk in them. According to Ephesians two 10, he's not calling us to do more than the works that he has prepared. Only the ones he has prepared. But how can I know what God is calling me to do? How can I know his will? These are questions that paralyze some people. What works has he prepared for me to do? And what if I miss his will for my life? These are questions I addressed earlier in the year when we did our series through the book of Ephesians. You can listen to the specific message of of that on our podcast. It's message number 85, entitled New Life, New Living, Part 3, if you want to go back and have a listen to that. But just as God is calling us to do no more than he has has planned for us, he also challenges us to do no less. It was said of King David in Acts 13.22, God raised up David to be their king. Of whom he testified and said, I've found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Seriously, Lord? David, the murderer, the adulterer, this man will do all your will? Don't you know what's coming? Don't you know what he's going to do? But it says a little later in Acts 13:36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers. Wouldn't you like that to be said about you if someone were to write your biography one day? He served the purpose of God in his generation. You don't need to be a powerful and famous evangelist for God to say that about you. Maybe God is calling you to serve his purpose in your generation by being a faithful father, a devoted wife, a conscientious employee. Maybe He is calling you to serve his purpose in your generation by feeding the poor, showing hospitality to strangers, defending the downtrodden. And yes, maybe he's calling you to serve his purpose in your generation by quitting your job and going to preach the gospel in India or New Guinea or Russia. Whatever it is that he's calling you to do will be your bread, your food, your satisfaction. And one day you will hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. One day you will hear him say, you served my purpose in your generation." Now, we all have a natural, inbuilt need for food. There's nothing wrong with having a physical appetite. But the lesson from Jesus is that we should desire to do God's will no less than we desire food for our bellies. Bill Mount says, An all-consuming desire to do God's will should be just as natural as the desire to satisfy physical hunger. There is no better food than this. No better food than to serve the Lord wholeheartedly in whatever task he has prepared for you. It will sus- sustain you for a lifetime. For that is where true satisfaction is to be found. When they finally succeeded in... In arresting Jesus, they conducted a mock trial and nailed him to the the cross. As he hung there, he cried out, it is finished. He had fulfilled the purpose of his father, not only for his generation, but for all generations and for all who would come to him in faith. He had carried the weight and the penalty for sin on our behalf meeting all the requirements of God. It was his father who sent him to this task, and he accomplished it perfectly. And we are the beneficiaries of his obedience, his hunger to do his father's will. The most important task we can do is to put our trust in him for salvation, for rescue. For reconciliation to the Father. When we do that, we start on this lifelong journey of fulfilling God's will in our generation too. Have you done that? Have you put your trust in him? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Would you give us all a hunger to do your will, as your son Jesus did? We pray this, Lord, so that more people may hear of you, believe in you, and trust in you for their salvation, and so that your kingdom may be advanced. Would you take away the blinders from our eyes, Lord, so that we would understand your word and obey from your heart. Would you sustain us by your life-giving word to do all your will for our life and fulfil your purpose for us in our generation. And we pray all this in the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.